Welcome to the SBCA Podcast Component Connection. Looking at how businesses around the country are innovating to take advantage of opportunities in the construction supply chain. Now, here's your host, Sean Shields. Welcome, everyone. On today's podcast brought to you by the Structural Building Components Association, we're going to talk about developing a 100-year company. Now, there are many constraints facing component manufacturers as they look to grow their operations today, from capital investments to equipment to finding and training enough workers. Today, we're going to be joined by John Herring, owner of A1 Industries in Fort Pierce, Florida, who's going to talk to us about how his company approaches these many constraints and challenges. John, welcome to the podcast. Well, good morning, Sean, and uh, glad to be here. Well, John, you've been in this business for a long time and seen a lot of changes in this industry. I'm wondering if we can start by you sharing a little bit about how you got into the industry and how your company initially evolved. Well, to be honest with you, I got in the industry because I got out of college and I didn't know what I was going to do. <laughs> well, I came to Florida and, uh, and met a company that just bought a trust plant and I didn't know what a trust was. Yeah. And that was in Pensacola, Florida. And back then it's interesting to know that, uh, there was like a franchise because the only plate companies were Sanford and Alpine, and you couldn't have two of them in the same town. So mm -hmm. this company by default went with uh, the Alpine because there was another Sanford company on the other side of town. Now I'm sure there was some other local TCA and some of those plate manufacturers, but uh, that's how I got in the business is going in and learning it from the ground up. And, and what year was that, John? That was in 1972. Okay. Excellent. So we're, we're talking about sort of, we're still in the early stages of the industry's development, right? Oh, way, way early. Um, it was, it basically, it was a custom handmade business. You went out there and you drew out the trust or you made one and you had to, there was no books, no computers. There were some guidelines, but most of it was rule of thumb. It was like you were baking cakes, you know, everything's one off. Everything yeah. truly is one off. It was, and it was uh, a lot, very simple, but, uh, it was basically a, um, carpentry knowledge business, not so much a manufacturing business. Interesting. So you got into it in 1972. What interested you about? What kept you in it? Well, what kept me in it was, um, I wanted to learn. And I wanted to ask a lot of questions. And I said, if I'm going to do this, I want to be the best that I can be in it. And so I started out in the shop and I went through all the processes, even from a truck driver to being a um, DeWalt saw operator. And uh, then we installed a, a piece of machinery, which was a big hydraulic press, which was pretty interesting for back then. And that was the first automation. And then, uh, I came in the office and started to learn drafting and went from there and got into sales. Then I got into management and I just, uh, kind of wandered my way through the business. So at, at what point did you sort of assume leadership and, and some strategic control over the company? Well, I left Pensacola and, uh, moved to central Florida and worked for a lumber company. And then I got back into the trust business because it seems that when you get into the trust industry, 
at a young age, it gets in your blood mm. and the dynamics, the changes, the challenges, the there's, it's, it's not a boring business by any means. And I guess it got in my blood. So I came to, uh, West Palm and, uh, partnered with two gentlemen that did open a one trust back in 1977. And I came over and said, uh, you know, I'll, I'll help you out, but I want a piece of the action if we, uh, as soon as we make some money and, and Mr. Norris, uh, fulfilled his pledge. And, uh, I stayed in that business with him and his son until I bought him out in the mid eighties. Ah, okay. All right. So let's, let's fast forward. Uh, you know, you and I met in 2005. Uh, I think I was there for a sort of a state legislative event in Tallahassee. And I, what I distinctly remember about that, and what I'm bringing it up is that, you know, at that point you were lamenting that there were just too many component manufacturers in Florida. There was just way too much capacity. The barrier to entry was just so low that anybody with a garage and like a table could start making trusses. And I, I kind of think, it, look at today's scenario, there's a situation. It's like, well, those were the good old days, right? Exactly. So, those, those were the good old days. <laughs> <laughs> Hindsight, right? But, you know, shortly after that, you ended up selling your company, but then you got right back into it when housing sort of fell off. And I'm curious, as you got back into it, I'm assuming your mindset was a little bit different. Certainly the landscape was way different. How did you look at uh, the component industry and business differently when you got back in? Well, let me back up if I can a little bit, because sure. uh, you're exactly right. When I took over, there was, there were some tough times in the eighties and the nineties, and there's always mm -hmm. going to be tough times in the, in the construction business, um, especially in the trust business. And you're right. We had like 40, uh, some trust manufacturers in South Florida and you had to be certified. Now I want to back up because trusses, the invention of the trust plate was in Miami. So this is where the proliferation of, of manufacturers were, they were all small. So you're right. The barrier to entry back then was just critical and it was a tough, tough business. Now you're right. Again, we, we did meet at some of those legislative conferences because I got involved with this industry because I wanted to learn it. And the, uh, the guys, the Lenny Silks the Dave Chambers, the Don Hershey's, uh, there's some great guys that I learned so much from just getting involved in SBCA. And back then it was WTCA. And, uh, I did it because I wanted to learn. I wanted to steal everybody's ideas so I could survive. Buried entry. Yeah. Pretty much get a truck, roller press, Dewalt saw and a cup of Clary's and for hundred grand or less, you could be in business. And that's what happened. I built a new factory due to some eminent domain issues. And I moved in in 2001. Now this was probably one of the, the more state of the art industries. And there was a big difference. And I sold in 2004 because I knew there was going to be a recession. I knew there was going to be uh, a really, really tough time. And actually that's when the industry started to roll up in the, uh, in, around that period. So I sold in 2004, retired, and then in 2008, they paid me to take it back. So I said, now there's something about this trust industry. It gets you in your blood and uh, I've sold it twice and now I still own it. So I don't know what's going you on. But, you just uh, can't get away. We didn't want you to leave, John. I just could not get, get, get rid of it. So I took it back and uh, 
you know, we had just a few employees and, uh, we knew what I said, Hey, I know how to run this business. It's different now and it's going to be different. And, uh, we were in a really good position and, uh, we had automated equipment, we had facilities and we had the know-how. So why not come back and see how the industry has changed? I came back with a different perspective. And at that time, the most important thing to me was to start working on the business and not in the business. Mm. And as we grew, I made it clear to everyone that, um, we're going to be a different company because we have to be, and that I can't be working in the business that I did the first 20 or 30 years, head down in the business, taking care of customers. And, uh, so with a little bit more, uh, knowledge and a little more bruises and a little more, um, forward thinking, we changed our dynamics and started a, a strategic plan. And, mm. uh, that's where we came up with being a hundred year company. And how are we going to make this a hundred year company? That's awesome, John. So help me understand you, you created a strategic plan. I mean, what does that look like? What does that mean? And, and how do you guys keep that moving sort of like on a weekly, monthly basis? Well, I'm in a business group and that business group is really, uh, uh, like my board of directors, you have to have a strategic plan and I'm a planning type person. I, if I have a plan, I can execute it and I can fix it. But if I don't have a plan, then you're just wandering all over the place. So a strategic plan is something that you have to create, be created by everybody in the business and you have to, it has to be a living document, not just something you put on paper and go put it away. So when I got back and we got the business back up and running and we got large enough, which we grew exponentially, uh, almost 25 to 30% year over year, I knew that, um, I could not do it. So I had to hire a CFO and his charge was to create a strategic plan. So hmm. about three and a half years ago or four years ago, they, uh, they got together and it took about a year to get everything put together. And they came up with a strategic plan. And this is a living document. They meet almost every month, if not every uh, quarter, to hold people accountable and check off what they've accomplished. Hmm. Well, I'm glad to say in three and a half years, they accomplished everything on our strategic plan. And that was a five-year plan. So <laughs> it was proven that they can do it. When we fell down in something, the team helped. But actually in January and in September, we will be creating after three and a half years, we will be creating our next five-year plan with a stretch goal of 10. Nothing like overachievers. Well done, John. You know, I mean, just to take a step back, what the strategic plan actually contains is not only sort of your large big picture goals of like, this is where we want to be. This is the volume we want to do. These are the, the ways in which we want to interact with our customers. These are the products we want to supply. Like it has those big picture things, but it, it also, if I understand it right, contains all of the iterative steps, right? It breaks every single one of those goals down into bite-sized pieces. That's what your team is constantly going back and evaluating and figuring out what resources do we need to meet this? Do we have enough? Do we need to 
change our thinking about how we go about doing this. We're not meeting such and such a goal. You know, how do we pivot to make sure that we're we're hitting it correctly, or we change the goal a little bit to to make it something that fits within our wheelhouse? Am I, am I understanding all of that correctly? Absolutely, one hundred percent. They started out uh, with setting a a, a a goal of what they thought they could do in revenue, and then they said, "How are we going to create this revenue?" And part of that revenue was to uh, expand our 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 base and open a second factory because we knew what the capacity would be at our present location. Hmm. And then they, how are we going to do this? Uh, the other thing was bringing on new products. Uh, the other thing was looking in depth at where the industry is going, what the changes are in the industry, who our customers are, who our customers are going to be. And I had given them the, the vision of the hundred year goal. I gave them the vision of being uh, flexible on our product mix and understanding how we had to be the expertise in everything. We weren't just going to bring a new product on and just, you know, throw it against the wall and hope it sticks. <laughs> so you hit it right on the head. You, you start with a big picture, a BHAG, you might say, big, hairy, audacious goal. <laughs> and then you, the team came up with all the plans right down to the, uh, budget numbers and the machinery and the time frame, And part of that was to expand our base in order to get to the next goal, which would be the stretch goal. And that's was one of the biggest things we knew what our liabilities and our um, restraints, which was obviously um, the size of our present location we knew would be maxed out at some point in time. So John, I like what you're saying here because you, you phrased it perfectly that when you got back in the business, you didn't want to be thinking about being in the business. You want to be thinking about the business itself. Like you had to take yourself back a step. And instead of worrying about you going out and making the sales calls and you going out and, you know, making sure you had enough lumber for all your trusses, it's like you need to be thinking about the business. Where are we going? And the strategic plan allows you to do that. But I want to dwell there for just one more moment because it's not like you just fit this in with everything else you did. You had to carve out space. You had to invest. You had to make an investment in creating the strategic plan and maintaining it, right? It's not That's like correct. just something that you pile onto the rest of everything else. It's a, it's a change in mindset. And you have to make space for that, right? In order for it to work correctly. Absolutely. And basically, it comes with just a two-way street. Uh, obviously, it takes investment. It takes commitment on my part. But your team, the people executing it, have to believe in it and have to understand it and have to endorse it because they're the ones that are going to be doing it. Right. John, let's, I want to finish this particular episode just talking about one aspect of the implementation of that strategic plan is that when you are by nature forced to think long term through the nature of creating the strategic plan, it also changes how you think about your employees how you hire them, how you train them, how you treat them, all those kinds of things. So can we end this particular episode just talking about how once you started implementing that strategic plan, you also changed the way in which you hire, onboard, and train? Well, that's a, that's a very, good, uh, very good question, uh, Sean. And I had the opportunity to learn uh, from my own mistakes and from some of the things in the industry is when I had uh, built this new factory, we were a different company. We were going from a small volume, uh, small 
customer base to a large factory. It was 110,000 square feet under roof on 1980. Mm -hmm. So obviously the number one problem was designers. Well, in order to get where we need to go, we either had to steal everybody or we had to train new people. And my belief is I want to train new people. So we started a training program I'm talking about in 2002. Mm. And that training program proved to be the number one success to A1, even today. So as we move forward, as we grew and came out of the recession, for example, in 2010, I had zero designers, not one. Mm -hmm. And today we have over 35 and we'll be up to 50 within the next two years. And these are homegrown designers. 90% of them are homegrown designers. That's astounding. So training. Now that just dovetailed right into what's happening today. By luck, by chance, whatever you want to call it. Uh, good business. I like to think it was a good business practice. <laughs> I think it was more by luck, but the point is it's successful with today's world and the shortage of 10 million workers in the workforce in the next generation. And that's a fact. There's going to be 10 to 15 million less people out there available to work. Unemployment will remain low. The training is the only way for everything. The new saws, the new gantries, the new ALSs and the, the new kinds of saws that are out there, the blades. Mm -hmm. If we don't train the industry and think differently about it, as we're bringing these young folks in, we will not be successful. This is computer. These machines are a half a million dollar machine, three and $400,000 machines. The designers, the sophistication of the software. And I'm going to wrap this up by saying that our mission is to use technology to change the way America builds homes. And that's what the industry needs to embrace. And we need to explain to our customers, the software side, everything has to do with, um, the cloud and storing these millions of files that we have. It's a different business today than it was even 20 years ago. Well, John, thank you so much for being on the podcast. This has been really insightful. Well, thank you. Uh, it, it's kind of been fun bringing up some of the past history <laughs> and uh, bringing up some of those memories. Yeah. Well, if you've enjoyed what you've heard, please give this podcast a favorable rating and share it with others. Also, consider subscribing to SPCA's Component Connection podcast on whatever platform you use most. That way, you'll immediately know when we publish our next podcast. Speaking of our next podcast, John and I are going to explore his company's process for bringing a brand new facility online in a new market. This has been a Component Connection podcast brought to you by SBCA. If there's a topic you'd like us to cover in a future episode, send it to podcast at sbcacomponents.com. <laughs>